I'm Karen Lewis, and thank you for listening to Recovery Bites, real talk with recovered professionals. This podcast is about life in recovery from an eating disorder, the good and the not so good, the successes and the challenges. Episodes will include stories from fully recovered professionals about the sometimes sad, sometimes painful, but always beautiful accounts from their recovery. Not their whole story, just bites. Welcome everyone to a wonderful podcast episode today. My guest is a friend, a colleague, somebody that I collaborate on projects with. Her name is Beth McGilly, and I'm telling you, you're in for quite an episode. One of the things about this episode, and actually about Beth, is she is one of the most authentic people you will ever meet. And she does that through vulnerability. Vulnerability in what she talks about in this upcoming episode. Vulnerability in the way she's utilized reaching out for support, listening to people who know and love her, speaking her truth. She is unbelievable. We're going to talk about a bunch of stuff today. We're going to talk about, as I said, some things that have happened in Beth's life. We're going to talk about the fact that eating disorders are not always about a drive for thinness, but often a drive for safety. And that's a really interesting way of looking at it. I think it brings more compassion for people who are trying to work with somebody. And when I say work, for this, I mean a support person who's trying to help somebody who's constantly getting frustrated. And it does happen. That's okay. Frustration's part of it. It's an interesting way of looking at it, though. Don't you think? We also talk about the fact that through recovery, we're given an entirely different way of relating to events in our life. Given where we're at right now with COVID, things that are going on in the country, things that are going on in the world, it is really important that we know how to navigate through challenging events. I am very excited for this episode, and I think you're all going to love it. Okay, let's get going. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. We are in for such a beautiful, beautiful episode today. I want to introduce all of you to Beth McGilly. Beth, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's an incredible honor. I'm so happy to be here with you. I am honored to have you here. And, you know, I, listeners don't know this. I always say like, listeners, if you only knew what's happening on the other side, Beth and I just had this beautiful, beautiful conversation of just love and respect and admiration for people. And, you know, this is another reason for the podcast is is having people know what life is like as you move forward as a fully recovered person and the beauty that you get to participate in in life. So just wanted to say that. Beth, if you could tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, about what you do, and then we'll get more into the podcast. Okay. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist working in Wichita, Kansas, otherwise known as Doodah. (laughs) So I'm, I'm I'm in the belly button of the United States, and I've been practicing. I saw my first patient when I was 21 years old as a graduate, first year graduate student, very, very early in my own recovery. Um, I came to know that I had anorexia nervosa by reading about it in my abnormal psychology book on the campus of KU and suddenly had a way of understanding what the past three years of my life 
um, had entailed. And that sent me on the journey to my work in graduate school and a career really dedicated to helping those with eating disorders, um, particularly focusing on folks who had trauma background and working with athletes. Um, uh, although I was a collegiate basketball player for a year when my anorexia unfolded, um, as with many others, my anorexia had absolutely nothing to do with my sport. So one of the things I've been passionate about as a professional is that um, we tend to throw the baby out with the bathwater around sport and exercise and recovery. And I've been a proponent of using exercise and movement and athleticism to support recovery when it's appropriate and when people are well enough to do that. So I'm in private practice. I have a phenomenal consultation group of folks who I've trained and supervised. We work together, although all independent practitioners, we meet um, every other week. So I have a phenomenal community of providers in my community. And um, we're the only ones really in um, South Central Kansas. Um, our state is completely underserved and we have no higher level of care other, other than outpatient therapy. Um, uh, the closest is uh, down in Tulsa at Laureate is three hours away. So I work in an underserved community with a phenomenal group of people who are all pretty overextended working with this population. Yeah, my goodness. You know, just from what you were saying, introducing yourself, there's so many things that I, I want to jump on. And I don't normally jump right into the podcast with things such as this, but I do want to point out what you said about athletes and eating disorders, because I know from my experience in the field, athletes are terrified to come into treatment because their first thought is, I'm going to be told I can no longer or ever again participate in this sport. And Beth, that has got to be a terrifying concept for somebody who's already afraid to give up the eating disorder. And so even though I didn't imagine it starting this way, can you speak to that? Because I do know a lot of athletes that that often say it take it's taken them a long time to get there or not until they're out of their sport and now they've had their eating disorder for a really long time. Right, right. Yeah, I think um, it took me marrying the worlds of sports psychology and my work as a clinical psychologist, eating disorder expert, to really understand the nuances. Um, but it's, it's critical to understand that as, as with having an eating disorder, where people describe it becoming a part of their identity, there is no doubt that, and I'm talking now about athletes, and by that I mean people who are really dedicated to sport, train in the sport, compete in the sport at any level. I'm not talking about professional athletes here, but for many people in that realm, their athleticism is a huge part of their identity, which may or may not intersect with their eating disorder. In fact, there may be ways in which their athleticism in sport is protective. Unfortunately, I think our field took a kind of like a blanket attitude that athleticism, exercise, and eating disorder recovery were incompatible. And so we took this staunch position early on where you couldn't, you couldn't do both at the same time. In the same way that we say you can't be on a diet and recover at the same time, we said, you know, you can't exercise or be in your sport and recover at the same time. And I think that there's a tendency to not want to deal with how messy recovery really is. And I think we need to grow ourselves up as professionals and deal with the mess. And so if you had dealt with me as an athlete in my eating disorder, if anybody in 1978 had done what the hell they were doing, they would have said they would have gotten it. My basketball career had nothing to do with my anorexia, which had everything to do with what was going on around my, the backdrop of my life personally and grief and all kinds of other things. My basketball if you had said to me, you're going to ruin your athletic career with this disease, I probably would have recovered much more quickly. It actually, if they had capitalized on that, I would have said, oh my God. And instead, I lost my athletic career because my anorexia wasn't addressed. And I was left alone to deal with that because nobody knew what was wrong with me. Um, so I think our field is moving in this direction. There have been seminal people uh, Rachel, shout out to Rachel Calagero and Kelly Pedrotti at the Renfrew Center who did early work around incorporating exercise and recovery. And then since then, lots of other people have come along and done phenomenal research and um, studied 
Can we actually include movement and recovery? And found that yes, indeed, you can. And for a lot of people, it facilitates recovery. Um, just to say one more thing, in my work around this, um, I had the incredible opportunity of um, coming to know Dotsie Bausch. Dotsie is an Olympian in um, cycling. She's recovered. And cycling became um, a form of uh, competition for me well beyond my um, years of an eating disorder. I was a competitive cyclist for about 15 years. And I knew Dotsie through um, my, com my competitive cycling. I was not a pro uh, like her, but um, I knew of her. And so Dotsie and I did some talks together. Dotsie, when she was recovering, did not see an eating disorder specialist, which probably was a blessing. Um, her therapist never pretended to understand eating disorders as an area of expertise, but she understood Dotsie. And she understood that Dotsie is incredibly genetically endowed as an athlete. But she was an exercise rat, and she spent her day in the gym on equipment with numbers. And so she said, and so Dotsie said, if I can't move, I won't get well. And so her therapist made a deal with her, and she said, you can move in any way that does not involve the movement that you were doing during your eating disorder. So it cannot have numbers on it. It cannot be inside of a gym. So the one ground rule was find ways to move. My language is find a way to move that moves you. It's not about caloric restriction or driving your weight down. And so Dotsie had a bike, like a beater bike. And she did some kind of a local thing that was for a fundraiser and was so phenomenal on this beater bike that these people who were really good cyclists said, you know, you should get a real bike. And this short version of the story is she's an Olympic cyclist who is well. And so what, you know, what I want to say, my mantra for that is do the dots. So I, I named it after dots. You do the dot. So what I say to my patients who are in sport when their eating disorder develops, especially when it is related to their sport, and they know it, and if they're honest with themselves, they'll know it, then I'll say, let's do the dots for a while. If you are a competitive runner, for right now, let's put running down. You can come back to it later when you're well and see what it's like for you. See if you can run well. You there's no way to know that right now. We say this to people around their food. They're vegetarian, they're vegan or whatever. And often we challenge them and say, let's, let's bring all foods back in. Get your mind in the right place. And let's see where you want to go with that when you're more well. And that's what I think about sport and exercise. For some people, they may say, I, you know, for me, I never wanted to be back in a gym. When I got well, I knew that being in a gym was like being like a rat on a wheel. It just it provoked unnecessary things in me. And for me, being outside was freedom. And that's where cycling came from. It's also not only freedom, but I'm going to share something with listeners, and I hope you don't mind me exploiting you in this way. But I've seen pictures of you like at a lake where you're like climbing a tree or on a swing rope. And that is, you look you look you look like this inner child is coming out just from a photograph. And again, I hope it's okay that I've said that on a podcast. It I've seen some of these pictures of you when you're playing mm -hmm. and it's beautiful. It is very complicated working with somebody who's severely in their eating disorder and an athlete. There's no doubt that it's not complicated, but as you said, you cannot throw out the baby with the bathwater. And I think we give a confusing message because there is the truth that healthy exercise is good for your mind, your heart, your soul. You know, I'll share something with listeners, which is, and with you, which is something that I, I don't really talk about is, um, well, I did talk about my non-exercise in one podcast, but I abused exercise when I was in my eating disorder. And for years, I almost, Beth, I like carried like with a badge of courage that I was like, ah, I'm recovered. I don't even exercise. I like my exercise is like laying in bed when I'm tired and blah, blah, blah. And I honestly believe that. What I didn't realize though, is that even as a fully recovered 
professional in the field, there was a part of me that was afraid to talk about exercise. And, and there was a part of me that didn't want to say, I'm actually going to go to yoga or Pilates because there is this older concept that still applies. And what happened for me is I started having some neurological problems. I was having balancing issues. And the neurologist said to me, what are you doing for working out? And I chuckled and I was like, nothing. (laughs) Sitting on my couch and having a glass of wine. She's like, no way. Your balancing problems, you need, it is healthy to work out. We need to strengthen your core, to strengthen your back, to have everything line up. And Beth, it is just dawning on me now as we're doing this podcast. I needed permission from a neurologist. That's exactly what I was going to say to you. You needed permission from some authority outside your eating disorder self. Yeah. And I'm not even kidding you, Beth. This was just like seven months ago. I just started moving in that way that I was actively doing a Pilates class or actively doing yoga or whatnot. And it's the, and again, as a fully recovered person who totally incorporates exercise with my clients, I say to them all the time, you have to learn how to do it. If we restrict it from you entirely, then say you're ready. Well, then you're just going to go to high extremes. It took a neurologist to say, it's not that funny, Karen. You actually need to work out. That's like, wow. We're always learning, Beth, aren't we? Yeah. This is the beauty of life. This is a recovered mind that you can have these aha moments, even on a podcast. You know, the one thing to say in all this that I think we would both agree on that's inherent to this topic is we're talking about when people are medically stable. You know, medical stability is first and foremost, and nutritional stability is first and foremost. We're not talking about, you know, people who are critically ill or medically unstable. But even even with that, in programs um, with even low weight or highly malnourished individuals, regardless of weight, they've found forms of movement that are still very helpful and don't interfere with nutritional or weight restoration. So even for people who are physically compromised, there are some safe things to do. But um, I think it's it's fascinating to me that um, it's hard to put language around this, but how regardless of a recovery status, how external authority yes. carries so much weight, doesn't it? And having that kind of permission to look at it differently. I, I'm just thinking now how this must feel to our clients that we are that authority. And the responsibility we have with exercising that thoughtfully because our words carry weight, just like that physicians did to you. Yeah, it was it was an unbelievable moment that for some reason just sort of like settled in my body as we're doing this this interview right now. It's it's very it's very interesting. How did you move through? So so forgive me, I, I heard you say that you were an athlete. Did sports and working out and athleticism, was that part of your eating disorder? And if so, how did you move through that? That's a great question. And I've never really had a chance to talk about it. So I appreciate it. So I, you know, I am the kid who you would have called in my generation a tomboy. I think before I was in first grade, I was lifting weights with my next door neighbor, Jeff Teefee. Um, I wore boys tennis shoes. I, my first sport was football. I showed up at the punt pass and kick competition in Kansas city and did not understand girls were not allowed to compete. So when we talk about identity, I I understand this deeply because my gender identity and my self identity is very much wrapped around sport. Um, all through uh, middle school and high school, I was an all sport athlete, whatever sport was going on, I was doing it's also important to note, I was never on a winning team in my entire life. <laughs> the beauty of that is I learned to love to do sports regardless of the outcome, which was important because when I was a collegiate basketball player for the University of San Diego, we played San Diego State and lost either 108 to 6 or 108 to 8. 
really remember because it doesn't matter. But either way, it's a great score. <laughs> so all through high school, I w- had a very healthy, unselfconscious relationship to body weight and food. My eating disorder developed um, quite rapidly the summer between senior year and literally on my way to the University of San Diego. Um, that year, my senior year of high school, my mother died. Um, she committed suicide after a long and tortuous life with manic depression. That is what catapulted me into depression. And when I got to the University of San Diego, after having attended the same school for 12 years, it was an all-girl feminist-oriented school. Now I was in a co-ed, highly privileged, um, small college campus with girls who were getting up at 4 a.m. to get their hair done. And mine had been in a ponytail for 12 years. And I had, I was a fish out of water in San Diego. I did not know how to relate to those women. The only thing I knew how to do was play basketball. That was, those were my people. And so I simply didn't go to the cafeteria. My, the unfolding of my anorexia had nothing to do with a drive for thinness. It had to do with a drive for safety. And that meant not going where I was scared. And that was the cafeteria. And so my unfolding to anorexia had nothing to do with my sport. In fact, it, it ruined the sport for me. However, once the anorexia took hold, I began to do things that were completely un, unnatural to me, like I was running in the middle of the night, and I didn't understand why. You know, that whole, the, the research on rats on a wheel, where if you, you know, intermittently feed them or they don't know when the food's going to come, they'll keep running. That's exactly what I was doing. Um, I was running away from my pain. Mm-hmm. And as uh, I did then leave the University of San Diego, I went back. Uh, I'm from Kansas City. I ended up going to the University of Kansas. Then the exercise took over. And a very, you know, it was uninformed. I didn't understand it. I had never, I mean, I was a kid who ran liners for basketball practice. But, you know, when you're, when you're in sport, you know, you only run if you have to. That's running is your sport. You hate to run, you know, but you do it because it's training. But I was beginning to run to run. That was unnatural to me. I was running laps around tracks. I had never done that in my entire life. Then, so then exercise became problematic for me. And that was back in the 70s and 80s where we were doing that goofy aerobics thing where the, I don't even know what it was called, um, and I was doing that several times a day. I was running on top of that. I, I was completely out of control with movement. And I developed a lot of stress fractures in my feet. And I would go to the hospital and they would x-ray my feet and they'd tell me I had stress fractures. They never addressed my low weight status or asked me anything about nutrition. And I would stop running until my feet stopped hurting and then I would start running again. So for quite a while in my active anorexic years, exercise was problematic. And because my recovery was not informed by professionals, I basically self-treated. I fed myself um, and I kind of studied the the recovery through books because I was in graduate school learning about it. Um, I stopped, I basically stopped myself from exercising for a long time, um, probably for several years. And I was not involved in any organized physical activity. I stopped work. I stopped lifting, which is something I dearly loved. I stopped running, which I had to do. And I did not run again until probably 10 or 15 years ago. Um, so there, you know, I came back into running through, through cycling and things like that. But um, I had to stop doing that and organized exercise and, and really, it was getting back into um, aerobics classes when I went off to internship. And um, I started doing classes with people. And it, it was a social thing instead of a uh, eating disordered behavior. And that, that became transformative for me. So for a while, I did the whole, you know, hour exercise aerobics class with friends. We'd go out to eat afterwards. I mean, it was a very different thing. But later, um, in my late 30s, early 40s, I got back into competitive sport. And an interesting thing about that, when I started, I I got to the point where I was being coached. And my coach wanted me to to weigh myself. Because cycling is a sport, interestingly, where you have to eat to compete. 
you can't you can't not eat on a bike. You will bonk. I'm nodding like I know, and I don't know any of it. Um, cycling is a very unusual sport in which, you know, your races can be three to five hours long. You can't go that long and not eat. So you have to learn how to eat while you're cycling and you, you drop a lot of water. You, you sweat a lot. So you have to watch your weight to make sure you rehydrate. So I said to my coach, you know, I haven't weighed myself in 30 years. I don't know what I weigh and I'm not going to weigh. So if you're going to coach me, you need to understand this is my background. I will do what you want me to do around hydration and food, but I will not, I'm not going to weigh myself. And I didn't. Um, but when you're, when you're cycling, you kind of know when you're dehydrated. Um, so I was able to do that without weighing, but I didn't want to bring that, the weighing part back into my life. It's never been a part of my life. That said, I think for some people, it's very important to neutralize a scale. If I have to weigh, I will weigh. I would prefer not to. I have yet to have reasons why it's medically necessary to know my weight, but if it was, I would do it. I'd prefer not to, um, but I do think we need to kind of neutralize the scale as part of a recovery. But um, so I would say I'm one of those people for whom exercise was woven into the disease, and it's also been woven deeply and much more deeply into my recovery. And I'm a physical person. It's natural to me to move. And your word is very apt. You know, I've been, life is a playground to me and I need to play. I love climbing on rocks. I love mountain climbing. Um, I love our swing here at the lake, you know, um, I love riding my bike. It makes me feel like a kid. Um, I don't want to be in a gym, um, even in an exercise class anymore. I don't want anybody telling me when to start and stop. Yeah. That's one thing. Yeah. Because I, th that competitive part of me is going to get locked in in a way I don't need and I don't enjoy. It, it transforms it into something that feels obligatory instead of me enjoying what I'm capable of doing physically. The difference is, though, is you're enjoying what you're doing physically. You're not doing it for weight loss, toning. You're not doing it because you went out the night before and you ate more than you quote unquote should. So. I do have clients where I say, you absolutely have to do a class. You don't know when is enough. You cannot go on a bike ride because you don't know. So you have to do a class that's one hour, beginning, middle, end, and then leave. That's such a great point, Karen. Yeah, because, yeah, it, it's so, and this is what I mean about it being messy. Yes. To show up with our clients and listen to their story. Some clients need the boundary of a class that ends. And some of us like me cannot stand the idea of somebody in front of a room telling me what to do again, because that enlivens a part of me that goes the wrong direction. Um, so we're, we're wired differently. And that's such a beautiful point. And I think it's important for, for uh, those of us who have lived experience and for the providers like us who are treating it, we really have to show up to recovery honoring the uniqueness of each person's journey. Absolutely. Otherwise, we're missing it all. We are. There's not a one-size-fits-all recovery package. And, that's the, and I think that's the hard part. And you run a program. You know, I think programs are keenly challenged to deal with the uniqueness of each patient when they need to have rules that kind of apply. And, and some of those rules are going to step on the toes of recovery for some of the people in that, in that setting. It's not going to be the right fit for everybody. It doesn't mean it's not good to do it, but we still need to honor, okay, for you right now, the way this program is going to run, this is going to bump into a place that's not going to work well for you, but in all these other ways it does. And guess what? Part of recovery is learning how to tolerate being frustrated. Yes. And part of recovery, and forgive me for interrupting, is learning that in life, in our jobs, in our, in our social groups, there are some set rules that are just universal rules. And you also have to understand then treating the individual, where do we adjust for this individual within the framework of the rule? And a client also has to understand just because this person is getting a little different you know, exposure to something, that doesn't mean they all get it. 
and you have to learn how to tolerate it. By the way, just because your office mate is getting a raise and a promotion doesn't mean you're going to get it. You have to learn how to tolerate it. So working with the eating disorder mind is really mimicking what you're going to have to learn to navigate in life. Yep. It's all grist for the mill. You're saying something that um, is part of what I tell my clients and has been an essential part of my own recovery. And that is that I think most of us who have kind of the, as Carolyn Costin likes to say, you know, the neurobiology, you know, the hardwiring and temperamental features, we tend to be people who don't like ambiguity and ambivalence. And there is no such world to live in. And so dealing with things that don't seem right or fair or things that are murky or messy, um, all the shades of gray, or when you're dealing with competing emotions, learning to tolerate those those feeling states is essential to recovery or we're not going to make it because the world isn't is inherently going to challenge us in all directions on those fronts so the same thing that's what I would say to my patients if they were in in a treatment program they're saying everybody has to do this and this isn't right for me and I go you know what this is the tolerating ambiguity and ambivalence thing that is it that is sort of the key thing which is how do you tolerate the ambiguity I mean Look at where we're at in this world right now. Oh my God, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's so interesting. I did an, an interview about two months ago and my producer, I call her my producer because she's so amazing, um, said to me, I don't know if you should be always making comments about like stay safe during COVID because we don't know when each one of these are going to be released. Now I'm thinking, my goodness, we can say this for another year. My goodness, look at what's happening in politics. And this is not a political show. Look at what's happening in the world with racism. Look at what's happening. We are living. Every person is living in intense ambiguity. What's very interesting, though, and this has really blown me out of the water, most of my clients have been handling it beautifully because They've already spent all this time learning what skills do I use with ambiguity? Like these are clients that I've worked with for like a year or two or whatnot. And so they're sort of like, oh, I'm not comfortable, but I'm learning how to live in the discomfort. And that has been a very interesting thing for me to watch in my private practice. Like, wow. Yeah. I think it has a lot to do with where somebody is in their treatment and recovery, whether they got that or not, because I think people newer into treatment, you know, and that, that were immediately launched into telehealth, um, you know, have really been cheated of, you know, the, op- the opportunity to get more grounded in their recovery before they were, you know, dealt these cards of isolation and food insecurity and all the ways in which people with eating disorders have been challenged through what's happening in the world. Yeah, I, you know, the, I find myself using the word grace room over and over and over that we need to expand the grace room within which we live and offer others because we're all doing our best under extraordinary circumstances. And, you know, we've been talking a lot about tolerance and tolerating, you know, when we're up against something that's unremitting, our threshold for tolerance lowers. And, um, you know, we, the things that keep us going, that source us, aren't as available, including just something as simple and profound as human touch. I know. Um, and, you know, for us as therapists, um, I'm sure you would resonate with how hard it is to do therapy when you don't have a felt sense of the person in the room. We're missing an essential element that therapists borrow from when we're in a session with somebody and we don't have that through the screen we're working harder strangely doing telehealth um but that's just for us as therapists everybody's working harder right now in their own way so my message to my clients in this time and to my friends and family is expand your uh, you know your understanding of grace room and that people are doing their best and you know be, be more willing to forgive and forget um, in these times and hope that, you know, at doing our best, we will get through this sooner than later. 
so that's kind of how I think about it. Um, I know I need a lot more grace room. I want to ask you a question, speaking of words. So first of all, I love the term grace room. That is beautiful. You use another word. It's actually a, a way of viewing self. And can you talk about, and I'm sort of shifting gears a little bit, but as you were saying words, Mind Sight by Dan Siegel. Can you, because in your paperwork, you talk about mind sight. And by the way, we all need it, especially during this time. Yes, we do. Can you explain it, Beth? Yeah. So Dan Siegel is a, just a phenomenal mentor of mine. And I, interestingly, the session I had right before this, I was talking to a client who's relatively new to her recovery. She has binge eating disorder. And she was describing the book by Shavis and Amy Pershing on binge eating disorder. And she said, I underlined about every other paragraph. And I'm trying to figure out how to make cards of all this. And she said, I can't keep it all in my head. And I said, you know, and she felt like there was something wrong with her because she couldn't hold it all in. I said, look, you have neural pathways in your brain that are highways about how to think of yourself critically and negatively and what's wrong with you and all the ways in which you're bad. You have side roads that are dirt and gravel that this book is, is, is informing you about, a way to think about yourself differently. What Dan Siegel has taught us about the brain is that the way you make thoughts a highway is to keep thinking them. That the more you think something, you are muscling up, you're myelinating your brain to more automatically think that way. And so what I told her was that when I was trying to learn mindsight from Dan Siegel, I listened to him over and over and over again. Every time I got in the car, I would put Dan Siegel in. I would read his books. I would underline and outline and color it in a different color because I needed to lay this down in my brain. In very simple terms, when I'm, when I'm speaking of mindsight, what I'm really referring to is our ability to reflect on ourselves. What we learned in graduate school is called having an observing ego. What we didn't learn, I don't think, or I didn't in graduate school, is the power of the observing ego and how it allows us to see that we are not our thoughts. It's almost like we were given a term without giving, without fleshing it out. And what, and what Dan Siegel said, and I'll give you a, a Dan Siegel metaphor, mindsight is like, like when you're in a very turbulent time. Mindsight is like imagining yourself at the bottom of the ocean. It is calm. You're resting on the sand. You're looking up. And on the surface could be a hurricane. And you can see it. And you see what's happening up there. But you're down at the bottom. And you're seeing it from that perspective. Like, oh, my God, there's a lot of turbulence up there. But I am not the turbulence. And I'm not in it. Uh, okay, this is a reverse metaphor. Mindsight is like being in the balcony of your brain and looking in on your life and going, oh my God, I'm doing that thing I do. My husband has this expression where he says, Beth, you know that way you are? Stop being that way. <laughs> so if he sees, sees me in one of my tailspins, like I am, I'm caught in some obsessive rumination, my mind loves to get a hold of things and chew on them. And I'll get stuck on something. And through mindsight, I can get up in my brain and go, I am in the rabbit hole and I'm lost in the content of something. And the content isn't the problem. The problem is I'm in a rabbit hole. <laughs> Just because there's rabbits there doesn't mean there's anything important going on. Right. I just chased an idea or a feeling down the rabbit hole and I'm stuck there. Mindsight goes, get out of the rabbit hole. So that's what, that's what I mean by that is helping people to have to develop a perspective, not just as a concept, but as a way to live in relationship to yourself. It is literally about not similar to what you just said. It's not the problem at hand. It's your relationship to it. The problem. Absolutely. That's so beautifully said. And now I'm going to make a major detour. Yeah, please go for it. Stay with me on this because it's part of what you know. I wrote about to talk about. So I want to talk about what mindsight was like several years ago for me when I went yes. through a beautifully imperfect storm of medical and dental 
and personal issues that were frankly cataclysmic. I mean, the, the rug was pulled out from underneath my life rapidly. And I, without indulging all the details, I will share some that are relevant. Um, I developed significant dental issues, which you can relate to. Sure can. That required me to have about two years worth of very intense dental work that my own dentist has said he's, it was the most complicated procedure he'd ever had to do so much so that he sent me to another specialist. Part of what happened with all that was that I couldn't chew. And so I basically was put on a liquid diet immediately and rapidly lost a lot of weight. And then I developed a host of other completely unrelated medical issues. I had a breast cancer scare. I developed high blood pressure. I developed some cardiac symptoms. I had to have a cardiac stress test. I developed neurological symptoms. My dad had Parkinson's disease. I was worked up for Parkinson's. I was put on medication for some of these things that led to further weight loss. <laughs> and within a matter of months, I had lost a significant amount of weight. And by that, I mean weight, a weight loss that was noticeable. Then, in a matter of months, I lost four people, two to suicide, that were extremely dear to me. Another question we can come back to is, has my recovery ever been challenged? The answer to that is yes. Not in terms of anorexia nervosa, but in terms of depression and the precipitating event of my anorexia, which was suicide. Okay, so we can come back to that if we have time. But Oh, we'll, we'll have time. Okay, in the middle of all that, physical storm, I had massive loss issues. And so what happened was <laughs> I, I had mindsight. I knew, I mean, it was obvious that I had lost a significant amount of weight, but what happened that I had not anticipated was the very thing I had told my patients for years, which I've never really read about, but I have experienced through my clients. And that is that if you drop enough weight with a history of an eating disorder, it seems to trigger the neurobiology of the disease itself. And I felt that. I felt after a matter of months, this part of my brain, and by the way, my neurologist said exactly what your neurologist said. She said, Beth, you don't have Parkinson's. And I said, well, what if the, I did have one primary symptom. I said, what if I do, what can I do? She said, develop as much core strength and body strength as you can. I hadn't lifted weights in a long time. That day I went home and started doing abdominal exercises, core exercises and lifting weights again, which I've continued to do since because I live in mortal terror, frankly, of developing Parkinson's. But what happened was I found as my weight dropped and it stayed there, I felt my mind want to go like, and I say, go there. And by that, I mean what I remember about how quiet my anxiety got. Mm. I know it's going to sound paradoxical, but you have to have the lived experience of anorexia to know that it really does turn the volume of life down. There's an adaptive mechanism at play there. And for a person like me with a highly anxious brain that I did not recover from, there's something that happens with weight loss that stimulated an experience that I felt drawn to. It's very hard to put language to. But what I had this time was awareness, which I did not have when it happened. I didn't understand what was happening to me when I was 17 and 18. I saw it happening. Now, I have the incredible privilege of being surrounded by the world's foremost authorities on anorexia and bulimia and binge eating disorder. My best friend is Margot Maine. Margot Maine was side by side with me through this whole thing. She, she was with me. I went and stayed with her. And she's like, honey, you know, we've got to stay on top of this. I'm like, yes, we do. Jen Gadiani, one of my best friends, Beth, what can I do to help you? We've got to stay on top of this. Um, interestingly, one of the things that was suggested to me was that I supplement with like liquid supplements. And I said to them, and I don't know how to explain to this, explain this other than just to tell you my truth. I felt like if I had done that, that would have been like acting as if I was relapsing. It was important that I not view this as a relapse. It was not a relapse. I was in a medical and, and you know, basically a psychiatric state um, that 
was not anorexia nervosa. It was not a relapse. And I was on top of it. And I, and I was going to eat what I needed to eat to restore weight. And I needed them to believe me. And they did. They trusted me. And I, you know, I have to tell you, if you know Margot May. Of course I do. Yes. You know, if, if you want somebody by your side that's going to make sure you keep your word, have Margot Main as your best friend. I'm incredibly blessed. And you and I had a conversation. And, you know, you, you know, you shared some of your own dental issues with me. I mean, I, you know, the other thing about it was that I told my patients, I said, this is what I'm going through. I understand my weight loss is noticeable. I am in therapy. I'm under medical care. I have the best friends in the world. I am not relapsing. But I could resonate in a, in a much more deep way with my clients around the, uh, around the internal experience of anorexia that I had so long forgotten. And when I had it, you know, the first time or the only time, I guess, I didn't have mindsight. So when I felt the pull of it, I had a deepened awareness for how seductive it is. I had a much more profound sensitivity to what it's like to go through weight restoration. It's, it's completely unpleasant. <laughs> I mean, that, and that's a kind way to say it. And we send people off to treatment and they gain 20 pounds in six to eight weeks. It's hard. It made me so much more compassionate. And I thought I was compassionate. But I have to say, having gone through this experience has changed me. It's also made me incredibly grateful for Mindsight because it could have been a relapse and that would have meant my life's career. I mean, and that's the other thing that we talked about through this, you and I, and we're doing work to try to address this, that if professionals like you and I were to relapse, we need a place to go and we need to be able to talk about it and not be viewed as, as um, fraudulent or failures or having been, you know, um, as if we were recovered when we really weren't. You said something earlier about, you know, your relationship to exercise. And I, I wonder if part of what you were doing is being afraid that you were going to be held suspect. Because I certainly, I have certainly been up against that through my career. Because I'm privileged to be thin. That's my natural body state. I'm privileged to be athletic. That's a natural part of my life. And it could easily be viewed by others as suspect. I'm very aware of that. I was not willing to play into their judgment. And by the way, you hit the nail on the head. When I had these balancing issues and I had not worked out in years and I, I, I didn't know what to do. So my mother... My mother, who, God love her, is the most phenomenal human being. She's like, I'm going to get you a trainer. And I was like, shh, we cannot tell anybody that I have a trainer. She's like, what? And I swear, it was like, I had to like grapple with it because it is true, Beth. We are held to a standard that it, it is it is talked about in the professional field. It is talked about with our clients. Our clients talk about us all the time. That's human nature. And I don't mean to say that in a way of like negativity. It's human nature. They're so conditioned to look at, oh, this therapist or dietitian is too thin or too large or too this or too. Constantly that, you know, you and I, you know, I've known you for years, but I don't feel like I ever, ever knew you. And I didn't really fall in love with you like I am now until a few years ago when you told this story at a conference. And you were speaking to a room of professionals. You and our previous guest, Mark Warren, who was on the podcast a few weeks ago, the two of you sat up there and spoke. Beth, my heart has never been so full. The, the level of vulnerability and courage and exposure and risk of whatever may come from that, you may have been feeling it, but you were not emulating it. And basically what I saw was the most authentic 
moment, somebody sharing, I'm a human being and I've had some struggles. We are not immune. I, again, I have never felt more connected to anybody. In my, I, I contacted you right after that conference and I said, we need to talk. Eating disorders are powerful. Suicide is powerful. Medical complications are powerful. Weight loss is powerful. Again, the difference is you had your village. You had your mind sight. You had courage. You had words. That's the big difference. That is a big difference. Yeah. Yeah. I remember, and what you're referring to is, I still, that like the irony of this is like, really? Is like someone playing a joke on me? About four, five years after I recovered from the behaviors of anorexia. And I'm going to say something else that I want to mention in a moment. I was in an accident and lost all my teeth. And my father was like, are you kidding me? We just got her through the refeeding process of anorexia. And I was, my father was like, if my daughter wants it, I'm going to find a way to puree it. Like no matter what I wanted, my father could have like opened a whole new pureed restaurant because my dad is like, there is not a chance in hell. (laughs) But life happens, right, Beth? Yes, it does. Yeah. You know, you're saying something really important there that I think is really critical. I'm thinking about um, the beginning of your podcast and talking about the beauty of recovery. And maybe the way to say it is the terrible beauty of recovery. Um, Ireland, the country, is talked about as the terrible beauty. You know, being recovered does not make us immune to the slings and arrows and the assaults and the Um, the undermining and the tragedies of life. It really doesn't, you know, we're not spared anything. We are through recovery given an entirely different way of relating to those kind of tragic events. And, you know, our challenge in recovery is to not use, not to go back to the eating disorder as, as our lifeboat. It, you know, for, for many of us, it was a way of trying to save ourselves And then we figured out a new way of being in the world with different forms of safety. And so I'm really humbled to the challenges that still await us through recovery and and not wanting to romanticize. You know, one of my mantras is stop romanticizing the way things never were. And maybe I need, you know, because we have a tendency to look back on our disorder and go, it was so much better than, I was easier than, In in some ways, I'm realizing right now as I speak to you, we need to not romanticize how great things are going to be in recovery either. You know, it's not um, that we aren't going to still be subject to what is inherent to life. We're going to go through a divorce. I did. Um, We're going to go through, you know, I've survived two other near suicides of close family members. I've had patients who've committed suicide you know, you ask, have there been challenges to re- my recovery? Yes, but my recovery as a person who is much more triggered by my patients being suicidal than my patients' eating disorder symptoms. That does not trigger me. I can't explain why. I can just tell you that I have not experienced feeling triggered around my patients' eating disorder symptoms. But if and as and when they've been suicidal through their their treatment for whatever I'm seeing them with, I absolutely am in a different state. My acuity for a person being suicidal is extremely high. I sense it deeply and I'm very attuned to it. And I'm terrified of, you know, of for my patients and for the loss that will, will emanate if that's what happens but I'm also much more willing to hold space with them around their suicidality. And by the way, all those feelings that come up in you and they come up in me when I'm working with clients and they talk about certain things, it's because we are the absolute opposite of being in an eating disorder. We are feeling, we are using mindsight, we're understanding. And by the way, you should be scared when your clients are suicidal. I get scared. That's my job to actually point out and to give space to talk about it. But 
Beth, you and I use our bodies. I say to somebody, I'm feeling this in my chest right now. And so what maybe the word trigger is not right. What it is, is that the behavioral part is not something that lingers. The the emotional journeys that we go through in life, they're still there to a degree. And so that's what happens. You know, you also wrote something interesting in your paperwork, and you and I are very similar like this. And, and I think this is an important message for people. People think once the behaviors are done or the weight is gained or whatever it is, that the eating disorder is over. I think that's the beginning of the journey. I didn't recover until I started the journey after my behavior started. And by that, I mean, like you, my eating disorder was 30 years ago when I was in college and I there weren't any places to go. I did not see an eating disorder specialist. I worked with a therapist who didn't understand. And my family helped and were part of it, but helped wean me back to health. I was like taken out of college. And, you know, I talk about this all the time of the podcast. I like cried at every meal and I like, oh gosh, I was a pain in the ass. But anyway, I digress. It wasn't, do you want to know the irony? It wasn't until my accident that I went through trauma therapy that I actually really fully healed all the parts of myself that went into my eating disorder. So when I say to people, it takes years, when they say research says seven to 10 years, they're not lying, but it's not always where it's at the worst part of it. Life is building and growing and you're gathering experiences and information as you're going through this process. And it's powerful. It's really, really powerful. And you had a similar situation. You did not work with an eating disorder therapist. No, I worked, you know, when I, the first person I saw, because I was in Lawrence, Kansas, which was 20 minutes away from Topeka, where the Menninger Foundation is. And you'd have to be old enough to know what that is. But the Menninger Foundation was one of the top psychiatric facilities in the world. And it was psychodynamically, psychoanalytically oriented. So all the therapists in that area were psychoanalysts. So the first person I saw, quite literally, I walked into his office and I said, I was a first year graduate student. I said, I think I've been anorexic for the past four years and I'm here to get help. And he nodded. And that was it? Yeah, so for about three months, I'm, I'm fond of saying, I can tell you how many nose hairs this man had. Because basically, I just stared at him. And then somehow, the most courageous thing I did was get up and walk out. And I thought, okay, this is not working. I don't know how I, you know, how I stood in front of that male authority and thought somehow he's the one who's wrong here. But I did. Um, and I found a therapist who said, I don't understand anorexia, but he was a family systems therapist. And family systems is something that is very much a, a fundamental part of how I think, probably because of my own therapy, but that was essential. And he said, I don't know how to tell you to eat, but take a nutrition class, which I did. And you know what? Often that, often that backfires. But frankly, back then, there was, nothing, there was no labels on anything. I did not understand nutrition because I, I never even been on a diet. But that actually helped me. So again, everybody's different. But um, I've had the same therapist who, by the way, is not allowed to die or retire. <laughs> Thank you, universe, for sending me, Karen. Um, uh, I've had her since 1986 when I came to Wichita from internship and have seen her on and off throughout my whole life. The closest thing to a mother I will ever know. One of the most blessed and gifted healers I was so fortunate to still have in my life. She's not an eating disorder expert, but she has seen me. And she, you know, I went back to see her when I went through all this stuff these past couple of years. And, you know, she kept an eye on me. And, you know, there's something about being accountable mm -hmm. that is a vital part of our recovery. I have a dear soul who I'm working with who's in my group. And it was in a terrible, terrible space on Monday in group. And, you know, wasn't sure how she was going to get out of it. And we met individually and um, yesterday and I said to her, I just, I want you just to do one thing for me. And she had been restricting. She has binge eating disorder. She was restricting. And I said, I just want you to eat dinner and I want you to take a picture of it. So I know you did it. 
because I want you to be accountable. And she's like, well, I can't promise that. And I'm like, you know, like Yoda, it's do or do not, you know? And she sent me a picture of what she was going to eat. This morning, I got a text from her. She said, I walked for 30 minutes. And she said, I was sourcing, because I tell a lot of stories in therapy. And she said, I was sourcing one of the girls that you had in your adolescent group that you've talked about, um, who um, I call it pulling a Francis. So I'm going to tell you what a Francis is. Francis was a young woman who 20 years ago, who if, if there are cards dealt in life, she didn't get any of the aces. Um, there were a lot of ways in which her life was underprivileged. And unbeknownst to us at the time, she had PCOS. And so very young, she gained a lot of weight and a lot of body hair and on her face. And she had terrible vision. She had real thick glasses. She just, she was, um, she had a lot of things she was up against, but she was a very dear and sincere soul. She had binge eating disorder. And Frances, her name's Frances. Frances was, was, that's what I call it, Frances. Frances was unbelievably bullied her entire life. And one day she came to group and she talked about being bullied. And I was just out of my mind with how to help her. And I said, Frances, I want you to do me a favor. And she said, okay. And I said, every time somebody looks at you wrong, does something wrong or says something wrong, I want you to say something positive to yourself. This was long before I understood neuroanatomy and myelinating up stuff. And she said, okay. She was very compliant. The next week in group, when we do the go around, how did your week go? What do you want to work on? Francis said, I have never said so many positive things to myself. And she was smiling. One of the dearest souls I've ever met in my life. She didn't come in and say, I was bullied unmercifully. She said, I said a thousand positive things to myself. That's called pulling a Francis. That's what my client did. She said, I pulled a Francis. I went on a walk and for 30 minutes, I talked kindly to myself. I didn't believe any of it. And what I say to my patients is, it doesn't matter if you believe it. Your brain doesn't know the difference. You're lying to yourself all day long with this negativity. Yes. As long as you're going to lie to yourself, if you think you're lying, then say something positive. Say positive lies. I don't care what it is. <laughs> You know, source your inner Meryl Street, for God's sakes. Find your inner seat. Talk to you the way that you know I love you. Let me be in your mind for 30 minutes. How would Beth be talking to you if you saw you through my the, the eyes of my heart? What would I be saying? Take that with you on your walk. I just, I just have to pause for a moment because I'm actually heartbroken to say that we're going to have to start closing this up. And, and I needed to pause before I said that because it was hard for me to say that <laughs> because that's how much I love talking with you, Beth. I love you, Karen. And I love that vulnerability invites connection. And that's what happened when I spoke and you listened intently to your own inner experience and reached out. That's exactly what we tell our patients to do. That's it. That is. Beth. It gave me you and it gave me this moment and it gives us a way of belonging. And I think that that is our deepest yearning as a human being is that we know that we belong and we do and you do and I do and our clients do. And we want to welcome them into that fold of recovery. That's what our life's work is about. It is very beautifully messy. Isn't that, how did you say? Beautifully messy, a terrible beauty. Yep. Terrible beauty. All right. Uh, we do have to end. I am literally like tearful thinking that we have to end this podcast. So I'm going to take a hard turn and I'm going to ask a final question and then we're going to wrap it up. And before I do that, I just want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Yeah. Thank you. All right, Beth, totally turning gears here. If you lived in another time period, but stayed in the same place you live now, when would you want to live? Well, I have two answers. One is right where I am now because I have all this lived experience I would never want to give up. And it's, it's giving me the most extraordinary community and tribe. And, you know, there was a time in my life where I didn't want to be here. 
And I'm so glad that I am. There, so there's one answer. The other answer is, I, you know, I was born and raised in Kansas City and the Santa Fe Trail went through there. And um, I can't imagine what it would be like to see that landscape for the first time. You know, to see the world with new eyes, to really be discovering the world in our country. I just can't imagine what that would have been like. Because I love, I love being outdoors. I love being in mountains. And can you just imagine the world unfolding in front of you day by day that had never been seen before? Absolutely spectacular. That's how it would feel. I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth. I'm saying I want to be here because it's all completely known. And I'm saying I would want a whole new landscape. So there's me in a nutshell. <laughs> and that's the beauty of life. That It doesn't have to be one way or the other. It's not all black or white. It's a paradox. Yeah. And you have to learn to live in it, or we have to learn to live in it. Well, I'm glad I'm living in it with people like you, Karen. Thank you for what you do and who you are and that you're my friend. Uh, thank you so much. I feel honored to call you friend. All right, everyone. I, I am, as you know, I cry a lot. So I'm, I'm going to end with some tears in my eyes. But, you know, that's, that's the beauty of life beautiful tears. So Beth, thank you so much. It has been a wonderful, wonderful episode. Thank you all for listening to Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. And I will look forward to talking with all of you again next week. Okay, take care and stay safe. Bye-bye. That's a wrap for this week's episode of Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. And I thank each and every one of you for tuning in with me. You can view more from today's episode, including guest information and excerpts by visiting www.karenlewisedc.com forward slash podcast. You can subscribe to future shows by searching Recovery Bites on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. All right, everybody, be well, and thanks for listening to my Bite for the Week. 